Welcome to Power Surge. I'm Alex Epstein, joined by Stefan Hen in Germany. Stefan, welcome. Hello, everyone. All right. So second second attempt at this daily format. Hopefully we'll get some feedback, see what people think. Um, one of the questions that came up last time that we didn't have a full answer to was um, to what extent is Tesla's revenue dependent upon government policy? So we did a little research on that. Stefan, what, uh, what's the story there? Um, yeah, apparently there are um, a lot of tax incentives. On the federal level, it's $7,500 currently per sold car. And in addition to that, some states um, give several thousand dollars in tax credits to buyers of Tesla models. Um, in addition to that, uh, Tesla was able in 2013 to um, sell carbon credits. Um, which is basically um, a sort of allowance um, created by the state of California for car manufacturers uh, that build zero emission cars or low emission cars to sell to manufacturers that do not build these um, to sell these to other manufacturers and then uh, make a profit by selling these. So it's a cap-and-trade type thing? Yeah, it's a cap-and-trade type of regulation. So how much how much money are we talking about? Um, I think it's it's at least tens of millions of dollars per year. Um, so in 2013, I think um, Tesla would have made a large loss, millions of dollars, and it turned into a profit. Like it was at least 10 of millions of dollars. I'm not exactly sure about the number for 2013. Uh, yeah, we I read a couple of different articles, and and yeah, the the thing that came up over and over and over is that they would have, and, and this is in the context of you know a company that has made a lot of money, that has had a lot of financial success, and um, well, at least financial success in terms of a stock price. And I have friends who might be listening to this who uh, have, have benefited from that, but it, it is important that. It's not simply. It's not even that they've just made a sixty-five to a hundred thousand dollar car. Uh, you know, that's more too expensive for most people. But that it's it's a luxury car, and that it's successful. There are all sorts of, uh, <coughs> you know, hidden costs, so to speak, that you know, that the rest of us uh, are paying in terms of, um, you know, our our tax dollars, and then the, this whole behind the scenes that the other automakers are forced to pay Tesla money. So. You know, be as if in the world of, say, authors, you know, I have to survive not just by what I can make writing books and articles, but all the other authors have to give me money. And then I say, oh, well, look, I had such a successful year last year. Everyone, all, each author had to give me 10 bucks. Well, that's, that's, uh, that, that's not fair and it's a different thing. And so that's, that's what's going on. Any, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, interestingly, uh, it's you know there's an analogy to solar and wind power. In addition to costing the taxpayer money, it's also costing the competitors some money because with solar and wind, we know that um, the utilities have to pay for the backup essentially of solar power and wind power. And um, in case of Tesla, the other at least manufacturers in California or or sellers in California have to pay. Uh, Tesla money. 
So it's in favoritism by government picking winners and losers in the current market. Yeah, and there's this there's this push to hide the actual economics of what's going on. So with you know with solar and wind yeah. to talk about oh it costs this much per kilowatt hour and and to fudge that in various ways and to ignore the whole issue that it's a dependent thing that's you know parasitic that's parasitically feeding off the reliable source of energy and that uh, it would be cheaper not to have it. Yeah. All right. Very difficult to. Uh, to measure the exact cost, actually. Right, and that's that's another that's another aspect of the manipulation. It's just then you can just throw out a number, and then sometimes people will dispute the numbers, and it's it, it's hard to get to the bottom of. But what we do know with these, what we can do is identify these basic dynamics of they are, you know, one industry is being punished and it is being forced to subsidize uh, another industry. And so when you hear these glowing claims that don't mention that, the person has an agenda that's other than giving you the full truth. All right, let's talk about Keystone XL since it's become such a big issue. Uh, what's the latest development on that? Um, yeah, so apparently uh, TransCanada or some of its contractors had some problem with uh, welding operations. Uh, it had a high rejection rate uh, when monitoring for these um, weldings, welding jobs. And um, the Pipeline and Tesla's Material Safety Administration, short PHMSA, um, has set up new rules for TransCanada when constructing the southern leg of the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and uh, they have to hire a third-party contractor chosen by the administration to monitor Keystone XL's construction and report to the agency if there's anything faulty going on. Um, in addition, uh, TransCanada has to implement a new uh, quality management program that uh, is set to, quote, build to the highest standards to both Keystone personnel and its many contractors. So... Um, this agency is apparently micromanaging uh, construction operations for this, at least for this part of the pipeline. Yeah, and what, what I mean, any given one of those, I think, can seem reasonable in, in a certain sense. But I mean, keep in mind, this is this is a set of laws and and regulations that you know, that already that is supposed to by themselves tell you, okay, these are what the rules are. This is what you need to do, um, and then if you violate them that's exactly then they're supposed to be enforced but to enforce but here instead of enforcing it they are then saying oh well if you are if you if you miss anything you don't just have to fix it you have to then go through a whole other new uh set of things to comply with and you think of the number of little things that can go wrong especially when you have all these regulations it's just this prescription for uh an, an endless cascading of of new regulations that are uh, onerous, and any kind of you know, person can then enter the scene and make it make it more and more difficult. So this cascade of of regulations is not the right approach. What you want is clear laws in the first place, and then they can be enforced. And then, um, you know, TransCanada, if if there's something actually wrong, it needs to fix it. And it's worth saying, as we talk about a lot, that it's you know, pipe, these guys are very good at shipping oil. I mean pipeline operators in general are good at shipping oil 
pipeline is a very safe and efficient means of shipping it relative to anything else. And they have a huge financial incentive to uh, to do it well, if for no other reason than they, do, you know, oil is the precious commodity that they are shipping. It's very, very valuable. Uh, it's not as if they have some incentive to just have uh, junk welding that leads to leaks all the time. Um, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, this is just speculation on my part, but it might well be that this is part of a, a delay and cost increase tactic tactics by uh, the federal administration. Uh, we know that um, the White House has been delaying, or at least the, the State Department has been delaying Keystone for quite some time. Now. And this might be part of the grand strategy to delay it further. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, and whatever, the, whatever the exact intent here, it's, <coughs> it's clear that with respect to this pipeline, uh, our government is essentially lawless. That is, there's no clear law that you can know okay, if I do this, then it will be legal, and if I don't, it will be illegal. So a kind of a law that is objective, at least in the sense of being clear uh, to follow. Now, there can be bad laws, and we want to uh, oppose those, but there's a particular insidiousness to the kind of quote-unquote law where you have absolutely no idea whether you are innocent or criminal until uh, after the fact, what they call ex post facto law, where... You know, any any time along the way, someone can can change the rules or reinterpret the rules in a way that's completely unpredictable. And this entire enterprise of, hey, we want to we want to make a very large amount of oil accessible to the U.S. in a secure way, and having no idea whether that is going to be legal or not. I mean, it's bad enough that there's these these um, you know systemic forces that are challenging important industrial projects but then even within that you can't know so it, it has this terrorizing effect on people and and it relates to another story we were we were talking about uh, this morning which i'll just mention briefly which is that in in oklahoma there's this they are being forced to shut down certain coal plants that oklahomans don't want to shut down uh, under what's called the EPA's regional haze rule. And this is one of these rules that says, you know, there's this just, the EPA can continually decide, oh, less and fewer and fewer particles are allowed and it's treated as an unlimited virtue to, to reduce particles, leaving aside, that completely ignoring, well, what are the benefits that you're losing if you're ruling certain kinds of plants, particularly coal plants, out? And here you have a case where they can just keep, you know, they can just keep changing rules, adding new rules. And somebody who built a coal plant a while back, which was perfectly legal and a productive thing, someone can now tell you not to. Well, what is what message does that send to everyone else who wants to build one? So, it, it, time after time, we have a a lawless government. So it's exact opposite of what we want. We want a, a, law, a government of clear laws, not of lawless, unaccountable uh, men and activist groups and regulatory agencies. Um, any final thoughts on that? Um, yeah, this has been in the pipeline for like several years now. And um, Right now, it seems to be that no more legal procedures can prevent that um, from happening from the the EPA from enforcing this um, in the state of Oklahoma. And um, 
I mean, one interesting part of this is shouldn't Oklahomans uh, decide how much haze they allow, how much emissions from the coal plant they allow? Um, why is uh, it necessary for the EPA to enforce a federal rule there? And as you said, it's an ex post um, intrusion. Um, the coal plants are already in existence and uh, beginning now, they have, uh, I think, a 55-month compliance deadline. Um, they have to comply with those rules then, and any coal plant that is emitting too many particles then will get shut down. So this will incur a lot of costs, and um, uh, some utilities are estimating over a billion dollars in cost. Um. Yeah, it's it's and the local thing is an interesting aspect because my sense is that in general, uh, I mean, local laws can certainly be mistaken and and wrong, but the more local you are, I think the harder it is to ignore lost benefits because you have the people there who are, um, you know, who are benefiting from the local coal power prices, who are working at the plant, who are, you know, who are there, and. Whereas from the perspective of the EPA, the EPA doesn't care what energy prices in Oklahoma are. It doesn't in no way experiences it. So the person experiencing the situation has sort of zero incentive to care about the positive and every incentive to magnify uh, or focus on the negative because then it makes it, it relevant and important. And who's going to have trouble at a cocktail party saying, hey, I'm, I'm holding coal plants to even higher standards. It's, it's just this, this continuous incentive to do things that are net destructive by only looking at one side of the equation and also by having this irrational, what we call the no threshold view that, that any amount of emissions must be, because a lot of emissions is bad, any amount must be bad, where there's a certain threshold where it really doesn't matter. Um, all right. Well, we're at we're at 14 minutes. We have there are a couple of other stories that we want to talk about, but we can talk about those tomorrow. Particularly, there's one with the IPCC and and uh, someone named a scientist or an, I guess an economist named Richard Toll who's been critical. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Uh, any final thoughts, Stefan, before we wrap up? Um, not in particular. It's just again a story of government intrusion and micromanagement, and in this case in Oklahoma, especially on the very low level. So. That's always bad, as we said yesterday, or the day before. Yeah, and and just this, I think it's important to have this idea of of a lawless government or a lawless energy policy, where where the producers, the people that are creating the energy that we need to run our machines, that we need to live, uh, are are being tr you know treated in a way that is completely unjust, that really goes against our constitution, which prohibits ex post facto law. And that is an incredible disincentive toward producing because it just creates this uh, this massive uncertainty that you'll do something that seems legal today and someone will decide tomorrow uh, that it's illegal. So one one major aspect of a proper energy policy, or one certain basic prerequisite, is just that the laws be clear and defined uh, and knowable. All right, and with that, again, let us know what you think. Um, you know, you can always reach uh, me via email, alex at industrialprogress.net. And we'll try a couple more of these, and at the end of the week, we'll see what people think. Stefan, thanks for coming on, and I'll talk to you soon.
Thank you. Bye.